0: Well, please open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, and if you're joining us for the first time today, our church has been studying through the gospel of Mark, and we've been doing that for quite some time now, and our study has been rich as we've continued to look at the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The theme of Mark's gospel is Jesus as servant, and the opening 10 chapters have exposed us to three-plus years of Christ's ministry. And we've witnessed him serving relentlessly, preaching the gospel and making disciples. And we've now reached a pivotal point in the ministry of Christ as his remaining time on earth will no longer be measured in years, not even in months, but in weeks. And this is unique to consider as we look at the layout of Mark's gospel that chapters one through 10 basically consist of three years ...of our Lord's ministry, and then when we look at the the, the final third, chapters 10 through 16, uh, at least, or 11 through 15, and a part of 16, that it really describes the last week of our Lord's life. And Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, and he's overlooking Jerusalem. And he's been in the city a number of times, and when he descends from the Mount of Olives on this day... He'll be setting into motion certain events that will serve as a climax with his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead on the third day. The event that we're studying today historically has been celebrated in the church age as Palm Sunday, although there's evidence that indicates that it was most likely a Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. Next month, on Sunday, April 16th, we're going to be celebrating Resurrection Sunday And so the timing of our study in Mark aligns well, although not perfectly. The events of this day mark the beginning of our Lord's Passion Week. And so before we dive right in, I want us to catch up a little bit on where we're at contextually. Jesus is at the end of a journey that began approximately nine months earlier when he was purposefully zigzagging through Gentile regions he went through Galilee, then Samaria, then Perea, and now he's finally to Judea. And during this final journey, he ministered at least in 35 different locations, timing the completion of his journey so that he would end up in Jerusalem right at Passover. Jewish law required that all males attend the feast of Passover in Exodus twenty-three seventeen. And now that he was back in Bethany, on the outskirts of Jerusalem, expectations of Jesus were running at an all-time high. Recently, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And we read about that record in John 11, which is the only gospel account that records that. And Lazarus, those familiar with the story, know that he was dead for uh, four days before Jesus brought him back to life. And this unbelievable news had spread many times throughout Jerusalem. Then even more recently, Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus outside of Jericho as the Lord journeyed to this Passover. And so now pilgrims were moving on before him and were enthusiastically spreading the news to everyone that they came across. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, great crowds were coming out of the city to see Jesus, the resurrected Lazarus, and of course blind Bartimaeus, who were told followed Jesus there. John twelve, nine through eleven informs us that the religious leaders were counseling together as to how they might kill Jesus, because many people were believing in him. There was unparalleled tension in the city of Jerusalem. Nobody had ever seen anything like this before. From the oldest of the Jews, they had never seen anything like this. And everyone was talking about what was going on with Jesus at the marketplace, on the corner, at at the temple, in their homes. The Passover was now only a few days away. Would Jesus make a move? If so, when? When? What would those who opposed him do? As the pressure mounted, the Lord indeed took a definite, calculated, and premeditated action. Jesus did something that was completely uncharacteristic of his previous ministry. Generally, we saw, and we see Jesus in the Gospels, withdraw from public notice, right? And now we see Jesus deliberately make a public entrance into Jerusalem. He voluntarily rides into the holy city surrounded by a vast multitude crying Hosanna. And all this was done at the time when myriads of Jews were gathered from distant lands to Jerusalem to keep the Passover. It is the account of the triumphal entry. And let's read it together. Mark 11 verses 1 through 11 says this in the New American Standard. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who were following were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany. With the 12, since it was already late. After reading the passage, you might be tempted to think as I was when I read it, because the heading in your Bible and most of the Bible translations says the triumphal entry. And you may have asked the question that I did what's so triumphant about the triumphal entry? And that question actually serves as the title of our message today. Seriously, what's so triumphant? I want us to look at three fascinating insights about the triumphal entry so that we magnify Christ as our true Savior and King. First, we're going to focus on the King's fulfillment of prophecy. And here we'll briefly cover the background of Christ's fulfillment of Daniel 9 and how the triumphal entry fits into the 70 weeks described in the book of Daniel. We'll also note the fulfillment of Christ's prophecy in the immediate context as the disciples retrieve a colt that was waiting to be used. And lastly, we'll look at the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy as Jesus rides a colt that had never been ridden before into Jerusalem. The second fascinating insight will focus on the king's coronation and humility. What was so unique about Christ's coronation? And how does it portray his incredible humility? We're going to answer those questions. The third fascinating insight will focus on the king's tears for his people. There is incredible emotion in the heart of our Lord as he enters God's chosen city. What does it tell us about his love for his people? And how should it captivate your heart and mine? How will it stir your heart and mine to greater allegiance to our king? The first fascinating insight is this, the king's fulfillment of prophecy. There are numerous Old Testament messianic prophecies that are fulfilled in the, in the New Testament. Probably the most uh, notorious, most well-known is that of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, Jesus, being graphically depicted, uh, cursed and hung on the tree, Right, a, a picture of Christ's death on the cross, and still there are many others that Christ, Messiah, has fulfilled. Yet three are intimately acquainted with the triumphal entry, and they need to be noted. One in Daniel chapter 9, another in our immediate context right here in Mark 11, and a third in Zechariah 9. Only the king, only the Messiah, could fulfill these prophecies. And Let's start with Daniel chapter nine and what is commonly referred to as the seventy weeks of Daniel. All right, I'm going to invite you to turn there. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, okay, Ezekiel, Daniel. So it's right after. If you're not uh, going as you go back to your Old Testament, if you got an electronic version, you just tap on it. I know. Okay, and as you turn there. I want to offer you some hermeneutical help before we look specifically at verse 25. The weeks in this passage represent years, and one week equals seven years. In verse 25, Daniel records that there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks for a total of 69 weeks between two historic events. The first historic event relates to the time when the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem happens, which scholars have determined is the decree given by Artaxerxes back in Nehemiah chapter 2. The second historic event mentioned in verse 25 is the arrival of Messiah the Prince. Scholars affirm this event as the triumphal entry of Christ, which we're studying today. What Daniel provides is a time frame for the arrival of Messiah, which involves 483 years from the decree of Artaxerxes, again back in Nehemiah 2, to the Messiah's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is fascinating, right? It's it's amazing how the Lord has it worked out in detail. Well, allow me to blow your mind even further. There is reliable historical data that affirms this chronology that sets the actual date of Artaxerxes' decree. I'm talking year, month, and day, with the actual date of the triumphal entry stating that they take place exactly 483 years apart to the day. How mind-numbing is that? Okay? Okay. That, that's, that's, that's radical. And if you're interested in learning more about the 483 years, there are two resources that will help you. Harold Honer's book titled Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ and Sir Robert Anderson's book, The Coming Prince. That's, those are two resources that will bless you. The supreme takeaway for us is the pinpoint accuracy in God's sovereign plan when it comes to the king's fulfillment of prophecy during the triumphal entry. During our Lord's earthly ministry, there were several occasions that you'll recall where the people wanted to take him away by force and make him king. And Jesus always had a response to them. And you'll recall what it was. My hour has not yet come. And we see examples of this in John 6.15 or John 7.30. Well, there's a second prophecy fulfilled in Mark 11 that we see in verses 2 through 6 of Mark 11. And I want to invite you to turn back to to our passage now. Starting in verse 2, Jesus instructs two disciples who remain nameless in all the gospel accounts. And he says... Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, in which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them. And they gave them permission. And this might seem relatively insignificant, but allow me to share that this, this, this foreshadows and, and plays a role into the third fulfillment of prophecy that we're going to look at. Truly remarkable. Here our Lord shares a prophetic word that is going to be fulfilled in real time, ...with his disciples. Every detail confirms that the king's word can be trusted. Some have speculated that Jesus might have arranged this transaction beforehand. That he um, went and had it set up beforehand so that that this could all take place. And though that's a possibility, the truth is that it minimizes his sovereignty... ...which is his ability to control all things... And it minimizes his omniscience, which is his ability to know all things. Listen to this. If Jesus could arrange for a shekel to be present in the mouth of the first fish that Peter caught in order to pay a poll tax back in Matthew 17... Which he did, and you can look at that in your own time. Take me at my word for it, or take God at his word for it. Better yet. It seems pretty simple that he could arrange for a colt, right? To be standing there, waiting in the wings. And it's just this point that you, you might be asking, what is significant about the young colt or the donkey? Thank you for asking This leads us to the third prophecy that the king fulfilled that is intimately acquainted with the triumphal entry. Nearly 500 years earlier, Zechariah had prophesied that the Messiah would come riding on the foal of a donkey when the prophet recorded this in Zechariah 9.9. And you may have noticed this. I'm a numbers guy. I always remember things by numbers. So we have Daniel chapter 9, right? Zechariah nine. Kind of ties it together if you want to know where those two prophecies are. And then we have one in the immediate context. See, you got them. Just like that. Boom. You know right where they're at. Memory key for you. And this is what it says in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. Jesus consciously fulfills this prophecy to the letter. In fact, he goes beyond, for he chose a colt which no one had ever sat upon. And this was because in the biblical culture, in the, even in the, the culture of the ancient Near East, an animal devoted to a sacred task must be one that didn't do um, or wasn't put into ordinary use. And we see references to this in Numbers 19.2, Deuteronomy 21.3, and 1 Samuel 6.7, for those who are interested in taking a peek. Mark 11.7 is a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy when it says they brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. It's in Luke's account in Luke 19:30 which affirms that no one has ever sat on this donkey before. And you know I think this is the first time in my life that I've ever been jealous of a real donkey. You know what what an uh, incredible privilege to carry the king of the universe on this monumental day into Jerusalem. Absolutely incredible. One pastor I read stated that Jesus is still using donkeys today to accomplish his purposes. If you don't understand that one, have your neighbor next to you explain it to you after the service. But the king's fulfillment of prophecy. This is the first fascinating, fascinating insight. You and I can take the king at his word. We can trust his promises to the very end. And that is a takeaway for us, direct, that if he promises in his word that he's never going to leave us nor forsake us, he will never leave us nor will he forsake us. If he promises that on this side of the cross that you will experience tribulation, that you will experience persecution, that life is going to be hard just as it was for him, we can take him at his word and not be surprised. We should expect them. If every detail of Christ's life and what he experienced was orchestrated according to God's perfect timing and will, then likewise, we can trust and yield to God's timing in our lives with anything and everything that takes place. Amen? Amen. And we need to hear that. I need to hear that. When things come up and the challenges of life face us and why did this happen right now? Why didn't Mercy get sick right before my wife has to go to the conference? Why did Liam have to step on a nail? I mean, you can look back and you can just look at the timing of every single detail of your life and he has it mapped out to accomplish his purposes. It's encouraging. There are no surprises in God's eyes. And the greater the trial that God has you face, the greater a faith that he is going to work in your heart as you trust him and have to cry out to him in dependence. You will lean on him. You will cry to him. You will trust him. He will guide you. He will not forsake you. He will be right there with you every step of the way. Every step of the way. His will is always perfectly timed to accomplish his purposes. Including the king's fulfillment of prophecy. Well, there's a second fascinating insight about the triumphal entry so that we magnify Christ as our true Savior and King, which we see in verses 8 through 10. It's the King's coronation and humility. Look at verse 8. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut off from the fields. The contrast between the, the coronations of the earthly kings of Christ's day and our Lord's coronation is absolutely remarkable. Allow me just to share a few contrasts. Earthly kings had officials who went ahead of them to announce their arrival. Christ the king was presented without officials or any official announcement on this day. Earthly kings rode on intimidating war horses or special chariots being pulled by war horses. Christ the king rode not just a donkey, a baby donkey. Earthly kings were accompanied by soldiers carrying swords and weapons. Christ the king was surrounded by common people waving palm branches instead of swords or spears. John's gospel account affirms that it was actually palm branches, which qualify as leafy branches, right? So we know that they were, were palm branches. Earthly kings had royal purple fabric and linens that were spread out on the path before their entrance. Christ the king had soiled coats and cloaks of the common people set in his path earthly kings had fine estates and huge palaces in which they live christ the king said the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head he had no palace he had no earthly estate even though he was indeed worthy Earthly earthly kings clothed themselves in royal robes and attire and wore fine jewelry while sitting on gold thrones and wearing gold crowns on their heads. Christ the king clothed himself in absolute humility, preparing his heart to wear a crown of thorns and embracing the wooden throne of the cross. The contrast between earthly king's coronations and Christ the king's coronation when he was presented to the people of Israel is stunning. And we can only imagine what the Romans, the people in the Roman crowd, as they witnessed this taking place right before them. It was like nothing they had ever seen before. They were just, they had to be completely baffled. and yeah, it was all according to God's, sovereign plan. Christ did not come to reign in earthly splendor or power. He did not come in wealth but in poverty. As John MacArthur shares about the first advent, quote, the incarnation was a time of his humiliation, not the time of his glorification, end quote. Just as 2 Corinthians 8-9 affirms for us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. I know what are the riches that are ours and the inheritance of Christ. The Lord of the universe, the Lord of it all. I love Psalm 16 that affirms that in his right hand are treasures forever. Anything that a person could ever want is in his hands. We have the privilege of understanding that Christ did not come to establish an earthly kingdom during his first advent. But this is exactly what Israel expected. And this explains their intense singing and celebration in verses 9 and 10. Let's take a look. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This was an antiphonal chant that was taking place as those in the front were shouting, uh, those in the back. Those of you who have ever been to a major sporting event, you've probably had an experience like this where one side of the crowd starts a chant and yells and then The other side completes the cheer, or completes the celebration. This is what was taking place right here. Some scholars suggest that it went like this. The first group yelled, Hosanna. The second group responded, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Then the first group would respond back, Hosanna in the highest. Now I want to bring this to life. To illustrate a point, and our slides team has a slide for us, and I wanted to let you know just kind of how my mind works when it, when it comes to just even the, looking at our church. I always view this as the front of the, the, the church, right? Right here on Walnut Avenue. So if people were to ask me, oh, I sat in the front, then I would think of this as the front. You might have a different perception. People say, oh, I sat in the back. I would tend to think it's on this side or even the, the, the back, of the the worship area. but I want you to participate because we're going to do this on my cue. We really are because it's going to set us up so that we can appreciate our our third and final insight even in a greater capacity. So starting from Vincent over, okay, and this section right over here on my cue, and I need your participation, okay? And so the, the, the louder everyone yells out, Okay, the, the less noticeable your personal voice will be, okay? So there, there, there we go, and it'll be on my cue, and I'll go one, two, three, and you'll yell Hosanna, okay? And then I'm going to come over to you guys and everybody in the back, and I want you to outdo what they just said, right? That's your goal, is to be louder than them, but you have a lot more to say. You'll notice, I've always viewed you guys as the smarter group. Over, Oh, oh I, I, you guys stop listening for a moment. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, you guys, you guys can, can do this, but blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Then we'll go back here, and I'll give you the cue, okay? So to start, I'm going to give one, two, three, but then when I start over here, I'm just going to point. You guys ready to do this? You ready to do this? Thank you for being so so gracious to your pastor and, 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 and going along with this. But, but there is a point behind it, okay? Ready? One, two, three. All right, all right. You guys can applaud yourselves. That was better than than I anticipated uh, at Cornerstone, uh, our, our our conservative culture, and not not wanting to talk during the service. Okay, but yeah, I, I want you to picture this because we we have you know roughly um, 150 200 people. That, that are expressing their voices. And as Jesus was going, crowds just kept coming in and being added to the number. So as they were doing this cheer, it just kept getting louder and louder. Not only this, but as they were going down the slope of the Mount of Olives, through the, the, the Kidron Valley, you would, have, you would have this echo effect that was taking place as their voices grew louder and louder. Hosanna was a customary greeting at Passover. But here in this context with Jesus before the crowd, it was an anticipatory cry, heightened in meaning, which can be translated, save now, or save us. The people were prophetically repeating over and over and over again as Jesus, they were saying, save us, save us, save us. That's what was taking place. the problem is is that they were asking the lord to save them from their roman oppressors they were asking him and they thought of of jesus really as as a, as a merely human descendant of david they had no idea that the messiah was god in the human flesh that he was it was the incarnate christ And that he was coming to save their souls. He was coming to save them from their sins. And they were looking for an earthly king who would establish an earthly kingdom to meet their earthly needs. When Jesus will clearly explain to Pilate this week that his kingdom is not of this world. In this same crowd, in a matter of days, they're going to go from cheering to jeering their king. They would prove to be temporary fans of Jesus, but not true followers. They would reject their king in unbelief. And do you know what would happen to people who rejected the earthly king, typically? Typically? Often they'd be executed right on the spot. Or they would be imprisoned. Or their lives would be made so miserable underneath the earthly king's reign because of the disrespect. Christ the king allowed himself to be the one executed. He allowed himself to be the one put to death when the people rejected him. And this is the ultimate expression of humility of our servant king, which Mark captured perfect back in Mark 10.45 when he wrote, but even the Son of Man, even the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Israel would be forever reminded of their rejection of the king as the the titulus, which is the the the, the um, sign of the offense committed by the criminal that was actually hung above the cross would say this is the king of the jews it would be a reminder of their rejection And it's a rejection that continues to this day as God continues to pour out divine judgment on Israel until they repent of their unbelief. Perhaps what is most perplexing is the dichotomy of emotions that take place during the triumphal entry, which leads to our third and final insight. The king's tears for his people Mark's conclusion in verse 11 is really anticlimactic. It says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany which the tw- with the twelve since it was already late. But Luke's account captures a gripping account of Christ's emotions. I invite you to turn there. Luke 19. I want you to see it firsthand. And we'll begin in verse 11. Forty-one. Luke nineteen forty-one says, "When Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it." And this word "wept," being translated "wept," doesn't do it justice. This is the same word that Matthew uses in Matthew two eighteen to describe. Rachel's weeping in the prophet Jeremiah's prophecy of when Herod would have all the children, to and under, slaughtered around Bethlehem in an attempt to kill Christ. Can you imagine that weeping, right? This is wailing with deep emotion. Listen to the graphic description that R. Kent Hughes writes about this verse. The road down to Jerusalem descended into a hollow and the sight of the city was again withdrawn from the multitudes because of the intervening ridge. But after a few moments of walking, the path mounted again and in an instant the whole city, not just part of it, burst into view. With the Kidron Valley falling below, Jesus saw the holy city as if gloriously rising out of a deep abyss. Before him spread the temple courts with its great temple tower, all framed by the gardens and suburbs of the western plateau behind. And with the whole city before his eyes, the Savior began to weep. We must never forget this. It was not with, with, quiet, it was not with quiet tears that he wept as he had done at the grave of Lazarus whom he, had, he was going to resurrect, but with loud and deep sorrow. There in the middle of the road, with the great city in dramatic panorama, the stunned multitude ceased their hosannas and heard the Lord of the universe wail over Jerusalem. End quote. And just a few minutes ago, we were having some fun like Israel was as they were singing the chants, as they, they were on their way to the Passover. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. They would be silenced. They would be stopped in their tracks as they heard the Lord of the universe begin to cry out loud. Not just cry, but Wail. Our Lord then utters a lament which only Luke records for us in verses 42 through 44 where the king's heartache is put into words. With his eyes filled with tears, he said, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Here Jesus is able to see what they were unable to see. The devastating consequences of their sin and their unbelief as they rejected him as Messiah and King. It was a prophetic vision in which Christ saw the proud, unrepentant holy city reduced to a pile of rubble wet with the blood of his people. And it brought the king to tears. 40 years later this all came true when roman legions encircled the walls of jerusalem with a barricade and starved them out the resulting famine made jerusalem a graveyard and finally when the jews lacked the strength to bury their dead they cast them over the surrounding over the walls into the surrounding ravines the great historian josephus tells us what happened after the city was starved to death quote caesar ordered the whole city and the temple to be raised to the ground leaving only the loftiest of the towers and the portion of the wall enclosing the city on the west those familiar with the holy lands you know that that wall still exists today on the west and it's called what the wailing wall that's right and Jews gather there to wail about the destruction of the temple and, and the destruction of the city that stood so gloriously at one point in time with God's favor on it. And little do they know, unless somebody tells them and ministers to them, that nobody cried harder. Nobody wailed more than they did, than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, on the day that he. Entered that city to declare himself as their king. Josephus continues speaking of the Western Wall as an encampment for the garrison that was to remain, and the towers to indicate to the posterity the nature of the city and of the strong defenses which had not yet yielded to Roman prowess. All the rest of the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot, no ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. Such was the end to which the frenzy of revolutionaries brought Jerusalem, that splendid city of worldwide renown. End quote. Jesus saw all this And it led him to wail in grief. And his tears, they do two things. One, they reflect his humanity and allow us to see the real person of who Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. But they also do something else. They allow us to see and look into the very heartbeat of God. Who has a passion, who has a desire to come and to seek and to save those who are lost. R. Kent Hughes concludes by writing, This is how Jesus Christ and God the Father and the blessed Holy Spirit sorrow over hearts that miss their day of visitation and what would bring peace, namely repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he asks this question, and I'm grateful because he gets to ask it to you. But it's the same question that I would have for you. As your life stands right now, what does Jesus Christ see in your future? Does he see judgment? Your towers pulled down. Desolation. The Son of God in tears, the wandering angels see. Be thou astonished, O my soul. He shed those tears for thee. The tears of Christ measure the infinite value of your soul. Christ wept and lamented over Jerusalem as he always weeps over the souls of the unrepentant. This is our king. Let us worship him with all that we have. End quote. Amen, church? Amen. This is our king. This is who we have allegiance to. This is who we swear our allegiance to as his subjects, as his slaves. When we answer the question, what's so triumphant, about the triumphal entry, we're reduced to one answer, Christ the King. Christ the King. It is so triumphant because the King fulfilled the prophecy of God's Word and He did so perfectly. Perfectly. It is so triumphant because he humbled himself as a servant king and clothed himself with absolute humility. It is so triumphant because even though the king ultimately knew that his people would reject him, he is the one who shed his tears and then would go on to shed his blood and chose to die for those who were worthy of death. A truth that still applies to every person today. The king is worthy of our worship for both the tears and blood he shed for our souls. He changed our hearts so that we too could cultivate a heart for the lost and look out over our city in which we live and see the great need to preach the gospel and to make disciples. Amen. And I, I've never thought about that sometimes in some areas, those who live in mountainous areas, you can kind of look out and you can gain some pretty big glimpses of Los Angeles, can't you, or at least of Orange County, depending on where you're at and what a rebuke to my own soul, my own heart! do I weep as he weep am i uh, am i am i uh, Pastor John, follower of Christ, are you truly who you say you are? Why did you look out and and do I have a heart like Christ has a heart? To look out to the lost and to be zealous for the person living to our left and living to our our right that doesn't know Christ. I'll just share a personal standpoint. We've made a, a connection with one of our neighbors and then we have the partying neighbors on the other side. You know what I mean? Even last night, it was probably midnight. And I've never, I've said hi, I've greeted them, but I've never made an avenue. I've never intentionally, they speak, um, um, they have an Armenian background, and, and I, 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 I don't, there is a language barrier, but there's a language barrier just talking to my in-laws, who, okay? So that's no excuse, Right? And I share that because I, God, God needs to, to, to get a hold of my heart and help me to look out and to see, to see what we need to see to make our lives count. And we can if we'll look to the triumphal entry and we'll look to the King who has served us so well and continues to serve us so well. Pray with me. Gracious Father, we bow our heads rejoicing in you, rejoicing in the truth of the gospel that you and your sovereignty allowed to take place and called us to faith in yourself. And I pray, Father, that there could be someone here today that has merely been playing games with you, that they've never responded in true faith and true repentance. They've never fully turned from their unbelief. Would you grab a hold of their heart? Would you help them to see that your tears were shed for them? And even as we look as a care group into the study that's coming our way in Romans chapter 11, that even the hardening of Israel was according to your plan so that the branch of the Gentiles could be grafted in. And who is that speaking of but of us? And that there are Jews that are wailing at the wailing wall who miss the Messiah And it was part of your plan so that we could hear the voice of the gospel and we could hear the truth and the message of salvation and respond to it. But you just don't want us to hang on to it. You want us to continue to proclaim it. We need your help. We ask for it. Have us not lose sight, Father, of the second triumphal, of the second coming that's that's in the future, that Christ will return. And the 70th week of Daniel will be fulfilled. And we know that there are seven years of judgment that are coming in tribulation and that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return and it's not going to be on a donkey. It says that it'll be on a great white horse and that a sword will come out of his mouth. And like a wine press, it will judge the nations because of their unbelief and their lack of repentance. May that stir our hearts. May it grip our soul this day. May we take it with us out of the doorway and not forget it. Not just this day, but tomorrow. Not just Monday, but Tuesday and Wednesday and so on. Help us to walk in our fidelity with you. Help us to be faithful to the gospel call in our lives to make disciples of the nations. We ask for your help. We need it. We close by saying that you're worthy of our worship. You're worthy to be acknowledged as our King. We give you thanks and praise for all of this. And we pray this, Father, in the name of your Son. Amen.